Bonjour, this is uh, Terence Galente, your American friend in Paris, and my guest today is uh, Stephen Powell, author of Love Me, Fierce in Danger, A Life of James Elroy. And Stephen, welcome to Paris. Thank you, Terence. Bonjour. Very Bonjour. happy to be here. Yeah, as I, you know, I, I'd met Elroy, who was, as we know, I, I would say somewhat certifiably crazy in his... Uh, uh, in this alter ego that he presents to the world. Uh, how did you first become acquainted? Because you're living in Liverpool. I don't necessarily think of that as a uh, a destination for Elroy. Well, at the University of Liverpool, I was doing my PhD on James Elroy. This was in the noughties, I suppose. Um, and I, f I started speaking to him on the phone in 2008 and then met him in person in 2009. I flew out to... Los Angeles, where he was living at the time. He's now living in Denver, and and that's where we met and uh, did archival research at the University of South Carolina, which houses his archive. And I would see him periodically when he was on tour in the UK uh, in subsequent years, and we always kept in touch. We always stayed reasonably close. We wouldn't see each other for a fairly long time, but uh, we seemed to get along and that's, I suppose, partly what made me a, a good choice to be his biographer, because I had a rapport with him and I had a kind of trust and uh, a form of intimacy in conversation where we could t discuss potentially delicate subjects because, you know, he has various traumas in his past. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I had read My Dark Places, I guess, which we would call a, a prequel to your book when he uh, delved into his uh, his personal history. I guess, you know, uh, everything begins with, with his mother, right? which I guess it does for all of us, according to Sigmund Freud. But his uh, situation with his mother is quite different from that which we uh, experienced, and it certainly has, has influenced all of his writing. Uh, uh, talk about his mother and talk about that haunting experience. Well, his mother was a nurse, a very intelligent and, and beautiful woman. And when he was a kid, his parents divorced. His father was definitely the lesser of the two parents. He was, um, he was a Hollywood fixer, but he never really worked consistently. Then he was living with his mother, and when Alroy was a 10-year-old boy, his mother was murdered. She was out on what was presumably a date. She was spotted with a man, and she was found strangled the following morning outside a school uh, in uh, El Monte, El Monte, just outside Los Angeles. And the case was never solved. So the unsolved murder of his mother had a profoundly traumatic experience on him. I don't think straight away, I think when he first got to live with his father, he enjoyed the freedom because his mother was a disciplinarian and his, his father wasn't. And obviously as a kid, he, he, he enjoyed that. But yes, it came back to haunt him and, and still haunts him periodically. I think he's found a certain peace with it. Uh, he's investigated her murder himself. He launched a private investigation, but was still un, unable to find out who the killer was. One of the slight coups in my book was that I was able to find out their identity. His mother, uh, Jean Hilliker, subsequently Jean Alroy, once uh, she married uh, Alroy's father, I was able to find out the identity of Jean's first husband, which even Alroy didn't know. So I was quite proud of that and very pleased to bring that information to him. She had a very 
brief marriage to a man called Easton Ewing Spaulding, who was a real estate uh, and very wealthy man in Los Angeles. Um, and I think what that revealed about Jean was, um, one, perhaps she had a weakness for men who weren't, you know, good men. Uh, she had, she fell for them because this marriage dissolved very quickly. Uh, but, but two, you know, she was, she was from a small place in Wisconsin. She moved to Los Angeles. She, she prior to that, she'd been educated uh, at a nursing college, resurrection college in Chicago. She had great drive and she had ambition and she was industrious and she was a wonderfully hard worker, but her weaknesses were bad men and, and alcohol. And ultimately, uh, ultimately that led to her demise. And there, there was the parallel story of Elizabeth Short that he writes about in in the Black Dahlia, which is uh, haunting to to look at that experience. Talk a little bit about the Black Dahlia. Yes, uh, the Black Dahlia murder case. Elizabeth Short was a woman from Medford, Massachusetts, who moved to Los Angeles, uh, very young. There's conflicting accounts of her life in Los Angeles, but yes, she was murdered. Her body was found in January 1947, and it was the most horrific torture murder you could possibly imagine. I won't repeat all of the details, but she she was she was chopped in half. She was drained of blood. Parts of her her nipple were cut away, and the the, the details were so horrific they weren't all released to the public at, at first by the LAPD. And this caused a sensation in Los Angeles. There was there was what you might call a panic pandemic about a serial killer on the loose. It was a huge investigation, and much as with Gene Alroy, ten years later, he was murdered in, in 1958. They never caught the killer, and there've been many many true crime books and investigations, private investigations since, and theories. One might call it a Los Angeles Jack the Ripper story. Alroy found out about the case a year after his mother's murder. Uh, his father bought him a book called The Badge by Jack Webb, which was a companion book to Dragnet, the television series. He found out about the murder, he read about it, and he was immediately haunted by it. He spotted the parallels between Jean and Elizabeth Short. You know, they were both women from small towns. They, they both moved to Los Angeles searching for a better life. They were both strivers, and they both ended up murdered in absolutely grotesque circumstances. Perhaps Jean's murder wasn't quite as grotesque, but a murder nonetheless by undoubtedly evil men, and it haunted him. And he fell into a spiral of uh, drink, drug abuse, and, and various traumas. But ultimately, when he got sober and he became a writer, these were two of the chief motivators of his crime fiction and his compulsion to write and obsessions to explore um, why men do evil things or to, to, to explore, you know, romantic obsessions. It, it was a very, very um, foundational case to him. You know, you know, at some level, he became uh, the quintessential L.A. writer. I guess we can look at Michael Connolly in terms of place. But uh, he was not influenced so much by uh, Chandler as he was by Wamba and uh, and Higgins who in, in Boston who wrote The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, talk about the influences on his, on his writing and his particularly uh, unique style. 
Well, well, you mentioned two wonderful ones then, George V. Higgins and Joseph Wambau, who, when they were first producing bestsellers, both of whom had success in their early novels, was the early 70s. Alroy was in a state of homelessness, but would also spend a lot of time at the LA Public Library, and they, they were the bestsellers, and those Wambau and Higgins were the ones who read. Wambau taught him a great respect for policemen, even though at the time he was often be, Alroy was often being arrested, you know, because he was he was homeless or he was he was found drunk. But Alroy learned from Wambau a great respect for the inner lives of policemen, the drama of their lives, the fact that they have often failing marriages or that they have their own demons. So Wambau was a huge influence and on Alroy's subsequent novels where he'd write about LAPD detectives and policemen and, and their demons. Uh, Higgins, especially his early novels like The Friends of Eddie Cole, Coogan's Trade and The Digger's Game, was a great influence on Alroy's use of language uh, because Higgins often liked to tell the story through dialogue and criminals have their own particular vernacular and they might talk around the subject until eventually getting to the to the point and that's driving the plot. That was a great influence on Alroy's interior monologue and his form of subjective third person and his uh, the way he would drive the story through this kind of emotional dialogue uh, a policeman might be having with himself. So Higgins and Wamba were two great influences. I think a, a much more foundational influence that you're quite right that Chandler wasn't a huge influence, but Dashiell Hammett was. Uh, one significant quote Alroy has said often is that Chandler wrote the man he wanted to be, Hammett wrote the man he feared he was. And Alroy's often been attracted to outsiders like the strike breaker or the minor mob figure, the, 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 the cheap cabaret entertainer or something like that. People who are on the fringes of society who haven't quite made it, either, either in the underworld or sometimes in, uh, in, in the police force. You know, when you, you talk about, I remember I interviewed Elroy when uh, L.A. Confidential, the movie came out, along with Curtis Hansen, and uh, he described the L.A. Police Department as uh, unlike, let's say, New York or Boston, where you had Italians and Irish and maybe the odd Jew, uh, as, as very Midwestern Protestant with this, uh, you can look at people like William Parker and this overlay of a certain, almost like a, a false sense of morality uh, that uh, that he saw in, in, in the LA, L.A. Police Department. He said, there were no Irish or no Italians. We just had wasps from Kansas. Would you uh, agree to that, uh, that theory? Well, I'm not sure if demographically that quite pans out in terms of um, what Alroy is saying there, uh, in terms of the actual composition and makeup of the LAPD in the 40s or 50s, but I think certainly emotionally and probably philosophically that had a huge effect on the um, the LAPD and its ethos. Of course, his most famous character, Dudley Smith, is an Irish-American and a very, um, one might say, exaggerated Irish-American, but let's just say uh, emph emphatically Irish. In fact, his backstory takes him all the way back to the Irish War of Independence and he's fighting mm -hmm. the British and, and whatnot. Uh, but I, I, I think... Alroy is not only describing 
the ethos of the LAPD. In a way, he's describing his his own ethical makeup. He he was raised Lutheran. Um, his mother, I, I don't know how much she believed in every particular dogma of the Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. uh, because she, you know she enjoyed a life. Of, she, she enjoyed a active sex life and and alcohol and whatnot. But Al Roy himself, who's also been pretty wild, has always had that Lutheran side and that Protestant ethic, which has influenced his writing and also his his morality. I'm, I'm thinking back to times when he was, say, shocked by the Clinton administration or, or something that was going on with Mon- the Monica Lewinsky scandal at the time in the 90s, say, around the time he spoke to him with LA Confidential was released. He he was shocked, uh, but he but like I say, he has been quite wild in his private life himself. So I think he's probably aware of the hypocrisy of, of that and is, is good at sending up that hypocrisy, both in the LAPD and in himself. Yeah, I, I found him on the uh, three or four occasions when we met uh, that there was this underlying what I would call a Midwestern uh, kindness or goodness that this this wild, crazy demon dog, you know, a persona that he creates for the public and, and to sell his books. But but fundamentally, I found him to be very thoughtful, uh, very considerate, and uh, you know, at some level, very charming, uh, almost the total opposite of what he presents to the public. And I would suspect that that's influenced from those Midwestern roots. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I can... That's my experience with him, absolutely. He's very generous, he's kind, he's thoughtful. A gentleman will often remember gifts uh, to send on, on birthdays or spoke to people who received gifts from him when they, when they were feeling down or something. And as I say in the book, when I first met him, I, I, was, a, I was a PhD candidate, so I was, I was not exactly a high-profile journalist or, or anything who could write this terrific piece on him, you know, back in the North. We're, we're a vanity fair writer. Well, yeah, well, exactly, yeah. I wasn't in any kind of high-profile position back then, but he helped me because he wanted to help me, even though perhaps there wasn't anything in it for him other than the satisfaction of, of helping someone. But another phrase he's fond of is that virtue is its own reward. Mm-hmm. What is it? You, you write about a scene where he uh, he's approached by a homeless person and he empties out his pockets because he remembered his own experiences. Yes, yes, that 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 I suppose that trauma has led to a generosity in him throughout his life, and that scene was witnessed by a, a partner of his who the, the relationship didn't end well, but. All of the partners I spoke to were very even-handed, although, although many of their the, his relationships have come, come unstuck because of traumas or, or or various things. His partners usually recognise that they see there were demons a swirl which seemed to affect our interaction and, and our ability to be together long term. But they they often remembered his kindness, his sweetness, his, his generosity. Um, and I was really touched by that. You know, and I would recommend to the listeners, uh, when uh, Sonny Mehta, the, the extraordinary publisher at, at Knopf, who had befriended him and, and published him, uh, when he died, there was a, a, a huge uh, 
memorial service in, in New York. And of all of the speakers and all of the wonderful writers that Knopf has published, uh, his remarks uh, were just extraordinarily heartfelt and, 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 and beautifully rendered. Uh, and I think that is available somewhere on the Internet. It definitely uh, reveals a side of him, a poetic side, a romantic side, and a, and a, kind, a kind side. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I just wanted to say, yeah, Sonny Matter had had a profound effect on his career because it was it was he who poached him to Knopf personally, which was a tremendous compliment. And Sonny, uh, you know, was well known for for finding talent and nourishing it. And the, you know, there were there were more commercial writers than Alroy. Alroy's pretty commercial, but 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 Sonny Matter always always believed in him never wanted him to stray from his artistic endeavors for something more, you know, commercial or more safe or more flat. Well, Sonny was a, a unique uh, force in the industry, and at some level we're, we're all somewhat impoverished uh, by, by his absence. Before we get into, I want to talk about the L.A. Quartet and the beginnings of his writing career, but how did that be begin to evolve? When did he start realize that he wanted to write, that he had something that he had to say and he wanted to say it in a unique way? Yes, his first number of novels were not particularly successful commercially. Uh, they were well-reviewed, but weren't always getting to the sort of high-profile publications you need to be well-reviewed. Um, so he was often experimenting and trying to find his voice. And it was the Black Dahlia, his seventh novel about the Elizabeth Shortcase, where he fictionalized it, that became the first novel of the L.A. Quartet. And that's that was his breakthrough. And that's where he found his voice. That's where he found much of his prose style, but also his ability to mix historical fact and, and fiction and create this wonderful period Los Angeles of the 1940s and 50s as previous novels have been mostly contemporarily set. Mm -hmm. So to follow up The Black Dahlia, he wanted to, to, to write three more novels to make a quartet, but they were no means direct sequels. Rather, he was creating this, what might call it, a Rovian universe of Los Angeles um, where you're seeing characters come through the series, like Dudley Smith, who comes more pre predominantly evil and malevolent and the main antagonist as the books wear on. But we're not following their lives chronologically. Rather, he's created this universe of, of characters and, and, and history which, which are interacting with each other. You know, they come back in the in, in the prequels that followed Underworld uh, USA. Uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> yes. or we get we get the, get the real backstory on Dudley. Yes, absolutely. Uh, altogether, I think the LA Quartet, the, the four novels, and now the, the second LA Quartet, the, the last two novels is written Perfidia and the Storm, a remarkable achievement. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, uh, even after he completed the LA Quartet. His, uh, his ambition never waned, and he moved on to three novels that he dubbed the Underworld USA trilogy, in which he he moved out of Los Angeles rather than have a single, admittedly big urban setting. He moved into a not just a national uh, setting 
for of, of all the entire US and the entire kind of political structure of the US, but also its foreign policy as well of the 60s and 70s. So reaching out into Vietnam, into Cuba. And Kennedy. Yes, Kennedy, uh, Haiti, the, the, the Duvalier regime in, in Haiti and, and foreign policy in, in, in Central America and the Caribbean. So it, he, he really, really continued to push himself and push himself. And I think that in part led to his breakdown around 2000, 2001, because the work was just so demanding. I think he pushed himself to the absolute limit for his art. Yeah, and I would say the things he's writing about, those particular experiences were traumatic for all of us. Uh, and I'm certain, you know, he's not that much younger than me, that, uh, you know, we had Vietnam, obviously, which probably history will record as the beginning of the demise of America. I think we're still suffering from it. And I imagine he was experiencing some of that as, as he was researching and writing. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's interesting how Alroy writes of himself as, as a young man that he, he was aware of history bombing around him just happening. For instance, on the, his father had suffered a stroke and on the day Alroy brought him back from the hospital, that was the day Kennedy was shot, JFK was assassinated. Alroy also did a brief stint in the army. Uh, he joined up rather foolishly because he wasn't cut out for army life whatsoever and managed to fake a nervous breakdown and, and be discharged. Uh, a consequence of, of that uh, discharge was that he was ineligible for the draft for Vietnam. So he was aware of history hang, uh, happening around him, and in many ways it was affecting his life. Um, his life could have gone any number of different ways he could have ended up in, in, in Vietnam and be killed or become a, a cripple or, or or something terrible like that or, or, or survive yes yes or survive with PTSD or or, or not who knows um, maybe, maybe that would have um, one possibility is it might have sobered him up he, uh, sooner he, he didn't get sober till the late 70s uh, and I think that was the best decision he ever made I want to come back to uh, LA Confidential because I think it uh, is is a touch point for everything that that, that followed uh, both the book uh, and the and the film, which was adapted uh, and directed by Curtis Hansen and uh, partially written by Brian Hegeland. Uh, talk about that book, uh, Bud White, uh, Edmund Exley, uh, the casting of the film, uh, everything about that, and and how it. I, I suspect had an, an enormous impact on the on the sale of his books and the uh, acquisition of a new audience. Yes, well, to begin with, the the book was hugely foundational to him in the development of his prose style because the original manuscript was over eight hundred pages long, and for the sake of publishing costs, an editor at Warner Books said you have to cut a third of it, uh, and that's non-negotiable. But he didn't want to cut a single character or a single scene. Uh, so he started cutting words. He started going through the page with a, a pen like a scalpel and cutting words, adverbs, everything, every word in a sentence he deemed unnecessary, and that created much of his prose style. So he managed to cut the required third out of the manuscript without losing a scene. And that 
greatly contributed to the success of the book and his development as a stylist. Then the, the, the commercial success of the book had led to belief in Hollywood that it could be made into a film, but particularly by Brian Halkeland. He teamed up with Curtis Hansen, um, and Curtis Hansen was filming The River Wild at the time and said, I'm going to be filming, you know, I'm going to be tied up for another six months. You go ahead and write the, the first draft. Halgerland wrote the first draft. Hansen made some revisions uh, and they took the, they, they managed to get funding. And this, this surprised Alroy because his previous attempts to get films made of the, the, the one, the one film that had been made of his book, Cop, which was based on his novel Blood on the Moon, he hadn't liked. And he was with James Woods. Yes, that's correct. As James Woods played Lloyd Hopkins. He was aware at this stage that movies frequently fell through. They, they went into development hell and, and whatnot. But Ali Confidential went ahead on a milchion for Regency, uh, was financing it. They cast two Australian actors uh, as, as Bud White and Ed Exley. Russell Crowe played White and Guy Pearce played Exley. Uh, Arnon Milchow, the producer, wasn't particularly fond of that idea. He thought it would be anti-commercial, but both Crowe and Pierce uh, give wonderful performances and they've become huge stars since. Uh, the, the production went ahead. Curtis Hansen what, what, was from Los Angeles himself, uh, raised there, and his father, Jack Hansen, had been something of a player in the Los Angeles scene. He'd owned a movie magazine, he'd owned a clothing store. So Hansen had a deep understanding of, of this LA life, which is rubbing shoulders with the celebrities, the the importance of the importance of knowing people, of moving in the right circles. He knew a lot about the, the, the world that Alroy wrote about. And Hansen really shot a, an absolutely wonderful film with an ensemble cast. Um, Kevin Spacey, this is long before Kevin Spacey was disgraced. He was a uh, Celebrated actor Kim Basinger played Lynn Bracken, and she won a uh, James, uh, James Cromwell. Getting back yes. to uh, Irishman, yes, James Cromwell as as Dudley. Smith, Dudley. Yeah, uh, Dudley being always most famous character. Yeah, an absolute wonderful ensemble cast. It was, I've, uh, I've added the word boyo to my uh, my vocabulary, and every time I use it, I think of Cromwell and that that scene with Kevin Spacey. Yes, yes, that yeah, that has entered the, the vernacular, hasn't it? Uh, it has. So it it led to Alroy. It didn't lead to a, a great number of his books being made into films, but it did lead to him becoming one of the most sought after Hollywood screenwriters at the time. Mm -hmm. And Alroy had a very lucrative career in Hollywood. Uh, after that, he. Um, he never regarded it as an art form, even though he did the very best he could. He was quite happy to be paid money for scripts, knowing that they probably wouldn't be produced. Um, but he, he became a celebrated screenwriter, and there were various attempts to make Kelly Confidential 2 over the years. Two television pilots had been made, neither of them picked up. And shortly after... Curtis Hansen died, Brian Halgeland and Alroy came very close to getting LA Confidential 2 made. Um, and Halgeland wanted Chadwick Boseman, who has, who has since passed away, mm -hmm. to play uh, an LAPD detective. Um, 
because the Jack Vincennes character has already been killed, he wanted to make up the trio of Bud Whitehead, Exley, and throw a black cop into the mix. He thought that would be very interesting, and I suspect it would have been absolute dynamite on film. Um, there also been some speculation or uh, about uh, doing it like 20 years later, what happened to Edwin Exley and, and, and Bud White, but that may not have been all that serious. Yes, it's it's often difficult to 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 trace the development of, of these failed projects. I mean, I've looked through correspondence. Um, Alroy had, had been working on his own TV pilot for a while, uh, and that that didn't get made. And then, curiously, over the years, Alroy, who had been very keen on the success of Ali Confidential, the film started to get a little bit down on it and criticize it here and there, just nitpick. Then after the death of Curtis Hansen, who had been a friend of, of Alroy's and someone he always felt a, a degree of loyalty to, he decided that the gloves were going to come off and that he was going to criticize it wholesale, um, which, which I think is a bit of a shame that for whatever reason, he, he's decided to attack the legacy of that film. But I mean, You've, you've got a, the, the film and the book are, are two very different beasts. I mean, there was, there was well, which he, in, in our conversation, uh, it was it was with uh, Curtis and and uh, and Elroy, and he's basically said, you know, hey, it's my book, it's Curtis's film. Uh, that you know, this is kind of the Hollywood thing. You you let it go. You uh, you know, you, you you took the money. Uh, now you let him, and I you know, I frankly, I love that film. I I watch it repeatedly. It has a, a lot of value to me continues to, to do that. Uh, a final th a final thought before I, I let you go uh, on Elroy, uh, his legacy, and uh, and his future, what he might be working on going forward. Well, he's in his mid-70s now, but he's not showing any signs of slowing down. If anything, I think he's, he's a man in a hurry. He wants to, he's already got a tremendous legacy, even if he was to never write another word, but he's got two major projects. One is to finish the second Los Angeles Quartet. Two more prequels to the original Quartet, which will be huge novels. Uh, I, I know they will. Secondly, he's got a book out, well, a book he's working on now called The Enchanters. Now, he hasn't talked much about it, and I, I can't give too much away, but I will say it it, it revolves around the death of Marilyn Monroe, and it, it, it involves Fred Otash, a private detective who was a real-life figure. Oh, who was in his most recent book. Yes, exactly. So it's a sequel to Widespread Panic, which featured Fred Otash. And I can't say much about it, but I think it's going to be absolutely terrific. It, it goes back to his classic period, Los Angeles of the, of the 50s and, and, and early 60s. And... Alroy knew Otash. Otash was known as the private eye to the stars. He was <laughs> a colourful character, shall we say, uh, but certainly knew about the kind of what was, what what lay beneath the veneer of that showbiz world. Uh, and I think The Enchanters is going to be an absolutely terrific book. I'm looking forward to it. And Stephen Powell, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, the book is Love Me, Fierce in Danger, A Life of James Elroy. And perhaps at some point you'll bring your wife to Paris and we can do a live event uh, before um, my readers. 
Oh, I would absolutely love that. Yes, yeah. I mean, I love Paris and um, and Al Roy. Obviously, as you know, Al Roy has a huge following in France. Enormous. Yeah, it, it, it's almost astonishing. But he apparently he had a wonderful translator, and he became very friendly uh, with uh, uh, Francois from the uh, Le Grand Liberty. And whenever he's here, they love him. Yes, yes, he's a superstar over over there, and. Uh, he and, and which which I know he absolutely loves and uh, he, he regards that as a key part of his legacy being one of the one of the great noir writers one of the great. Well, maybe maybe <laughs> both of you will be here and we can do an event together. Yeah, absolutely, I'd love Let's that. Do that. So once again, Stephen Powell, "Love Me Fierce in Danger: A Life of James or the Life of James Elroy." Once again, thank you. I'm Terence Galenter. Until next time, see you then. Bye bye. Thank you, Terence. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at terence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.